This episode of See Here is brought to you from Land Down Under. Episode 31 of See Here, my name is Morris, and joining me on the other end of a Skype connection in Bath is Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Hello. Good evening. And from a man who wishes he was sitting in a bath of ice cubes is Mr. Tim Merrill in Seoul. Good morning. How's everybody doing out there? It's uh, pretty balmy here in Seoul, and I'm just sitting here sweating like Cosby in court, but aside from that, everything's okay. <laughs> Probably doing a little better than you, Tim. I think it's about five degrees here, which I know in northern hemispherian terms is hardly cold at all, but, but still. Touch your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, Mr. 36 is balmy. Oh, get with the program. Anyway, but we're not here to discuss the weather. We're here to discuss music-related films, and we're doing something a little bit different this time. We have an interview to present to you. It's the first interview, I think, that we've done on this show. I was listening to a great program here on... Uh, Melbourne radio station 3 Triple R, and they did an interview on, a, on this show it's called Film Buffs Forecast with a fellow called Harry Hayes now Harry Hayes is a recent graduate of Swinburne University Film and Television School he's gone and made a fascinating documentary the name of the film is You'd Better Take Cover about men at work but not just about men at work and the whole story but specifically about their song Down Under now I'm not sure how well known this got to be outside of Australia but a few years ago a publishing company here tried to sue members of Men at Work for having taken one of the riffs in the song Down Under from a famous children's nursery rhyme here called Kookaburra Sits in the Old Gum Tree. And unfortunately, they were successfully sued. So, you know, no spoilers about the documentary because that's what it's about. And Harry wanted to discover why did this happen? How did this happen? Was it justified? Uh, Larrikin Music, who are the publishers, why did they do this? And unfortunately, I don't think you've got anyone from Larrikin Music to talk in the film that would have been interesting getting their perspective it's a really fascinating little documentary so you know the- well, we know their perspective Ka-ching. <laughs> that's yes that's right we had a fascinating discussion with harry the film we hope we'll be doing the rounds very shortly of uh, the international film festivals actually i know that it was a funny thing didn't he say to us that uh, once we'd stopped recording that the film had actually won a couple of awards we had a great film festival here called the st kilda film festival just dedicated to short films and and he won the best documentary at that film festival. Unfortunately, he didn't think to say that during the interview. So uh, we'll go and sing his praises here. Well, I certainly remember the um, the song. It was a huge hit here in the UK. But I think, unlike a lot of people outside of Australia, I, I knew nothing of the, uh, the sort of subsequent story and the legal issues and, and so forth and then what happened afterwards. So it really kind of opened up the, uh, the song and its legacy for me, really. And, and the fact that it is, you know, as I understand it, it's almost like an official second national anthem for, uh, for Australia. Mm. 
So I, I didn't realise it was quite as epically huge as it was. Yeah, it's a really nice documentary, really well made, and it's uh, an interesting and not particularly happy story, shall we say. Yeah, it, it was and it was nice to talk to Harry as well about the whole thing and the process and why he decided to do it. I think this short that Harry did here is very important uh, film because, in a way, it kind of uh, sheds light on in two fields. You know, in one, it sheds light on uh, the legal field, you know, about uh, copyright and intent or non-intent to uh, mimic or, you know, um, plagiarism in a sense. But it also talks about the other side of the musical aspect where, you know, most recently anyone who's within earshot has heard about the Led Zeppelin case with Spirit. Right, You know, right. about Stairway to Heaven. And I mean, all of that, how it boiled down that they said the Zeppelin had not pilfered from Spirit. But what's interesting, too, is the irony that you know, everyone has said forever and a day that all these old legendary influential blues musicians such as, you know, Muddy Waters and Alan Wolf and Lead Belly and all these people, that everyone had basically cribbed from them and yet they had never really ever seen a dime of any of it and that the only reason was because of the fact that they didn't have any legal representation at that time were American what did they create aside from the ability to make money what did they create they didn't create anything they're standing and taking their stance as creators you know even though they're really not you know I mean they own the legal rights to Kookaburra but they're not creators in any sense of the word and what's even more ludicrous it goes beyond that is that the creator of said song had no problem whatsoever with the Men at Work song. That's right. And yet, though, with powers beyond their control, you know, it gets sucked up by a, you know, by a conglomerate, and then the next thing you know is the conglomerate who's basically going after the band and trying to make money from the band so that eventually the conglomerate will probably wind up later using the song to sell garbage bags or something. Right. It's an interesting, fascinating uh, little piece here that Harry's put out. And I mean, for even though, you know, some of you may not be that uh, enamored with Man of Work or you might be sick to death the song from the 80s because it was burning everybody's brain. Regardless of those things, I think, you know, this, there's something really here substantial and, and also, like Bernie had said, it's very sad. It was a very sad ending, very sad epilogue to the whole thing. A story that really should have ended with the song being number one in the 80s. Being as from someone who was on this side of the world, it, it, was, it was a big thing because previously, Australian musicians, it was always the dream to make it in America or to make it in Europe. It, you know, make it in those markets and really the only things that we were known for I think at the time were Helen Reddy Olivia Newton-John and Air Support The Little River Band and oh, the Little River and, and the, and the, yep, Sorry, forget The Little River Band Fair enough Roll Harris in the UK I'm sad to say Sorry, we, 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 we give them to you We give them to you He's, <laughs> Men at Work, they did something that was completely new. It was a song that for that generation, it was exciting. It wasn't just that song. I mean, that song did explode, but Business as Usual, the album that it came from, was it was number one in America, which right. I don't right. think any Australian actor well, had ever done that before. So right. it was very, very exciting. And you know, bands nowadays from Australia, which seem to make it overseas, it's taken for granted. It, you know, the world, it's a universal village music. And acts which we like here. There, there's still plenty that you know won't necessarily make it on the other side of the pond, but it's a lot more common. And really, Men at Work broke a lot of barriers in being able to do that. And this song 
seems to be the focus. The interesting thing about men at work as well is that they seem to have done it, or they did it on their own terms, and mm. they had a very, I know this, this might sound a little silly, but they sounded Australian. They didn't yeah. cater what they were doing to, right. to sort of break that worldwide market. They did that by being themselves. Unfortunately, what happened with uh, Down Under and as Harry's documentary shows, the uh, the unfortunate end result of that wound up with them being sued by, uh, by Larrakin, you know. Hey, Bernie, it's just business as usual. What you were getting at, Morris, with, you know, Australian bands wanting to succeed and the overall effect that Men at Work had, I think they really captured the zeitgeist in Australia in the 80s at that time, you know, what it meant to be Australian. It was an overwhelming, like I said, an unofficial national anthem or whatever, but but I think it's funny how the Larrikin, they could have overlooked it. They could have said, look, you know, like, this is a thing bigger than any of us, you know, this is the thing that we're all basking in and enjoying in. And this is a moment in the sun, not for the band, but for Australia. But again, like I said, business as usual. And it only, only takes one person to piss on the parade, right? And that's that's unfortunate, but that's, that's what happened. All right, so with that, let's uh, go now to our interview with Harry Hayes. And as I said, it was really an enjoyable experience to uh, chat with a filmmaker. And hopefully we'll get a few more of these somewhere down the track. But listen to our chat with Harry and maybe gain more more of an appreciation for business as usual men at work down under we'll uh, speak to you on the other side of uh, the interview we'll be back shortly you're listening to see here Welcome back to this special bonus episode of See Here Podcast. Bernie, Tim and I are sitting on a Skype connection with a very special guest this time around. And his name is Harry Hayes. He's the director of a new film, a documentary about men at work and more specifically about the song Down Under and the debacle that sort of got caused here in Australia many years after the fact about their song Down Under. Uh, The name of the film is called You Better Take Cover. And welcome to the show, Harry. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're, you're something of a guinea pig because I think up until now we've never actually had a filmmaker on the show to talk about their film. We've just been doing reviews and things like that. So welcome to be uh, the first of many, we hope. Oh, wow. What an uh, honour. Oh, well, the, the, the honour is all ours. Uh, look, I, I wanted to, before we start talking about your film, You Better Take Cover, could you give us a little bit of information about your own background? I mean, this film was your final year piece at Swinburne University Film School here in Melbourne. Just give us a bit of a background, your love of film, your love of music, what got your interest in going to Swinburne for the film school? Sure. So my dad was a filmmaker, a film editor, and his claim to fame would be that he edited the first Mad Max. Oh, wow! And, um, the toe cutter! He knows who I am! I am the Night Rider! What? Yes. Oh, that's <laughs> amazing! Way. He wow. did film jobs when I was younger, like on Neighbours and like editing jobs here, here and there. He had a very, um, I guess, like developed interest in films, and he'd always bring home like really strange films for me to watch. So I guess that got me thinking that filmmaking was possible as a career and and then I got very into um, photography when I was a teenager and eventually decided to study filmmaking with the idea of becoming a cinematographer 
be able to tell stories like visually. And throughout the course was very versatile that I did at Swinburne. They, in the first couple of years, they sort of make you try everything. And it's a very practical school. Like the first semester, we all had to produce our own 90 second film. And that was a, a good exercise in trying to work out what a story is and how do I get it down to 90 seconds. And then we were guided through trying out sound and trying out writing about film, trying out lots of different elements of the industry eventually we had to make a documentary and i hadn't thought much about it but i really took to it and did a six minute documentary about i was feeling like pretty strange about um, eating meat at the time and i decided i wanted to really like investigate my own ethics kind of or investigate where i was with eating meat so i decided to get a lamb and keep it for a few weeks and then have it like slaughtered the the idea eventually uh, originally was that i was going to kill it and and then butcher it and it was like such a crazy few weeks and eventually I got a guy to come in and kill it for me and butcher it for me. I had all this footage and like the strangest experience that I had to now fashion into a story and yeah, I just really got into the process of documentaries. You end up behind the camera going through a pretty strange experience or, or meeting people that you're interested in within a topic and then I, I love editing as well so I like at the end taking some time to work out what just happened and then trying to yeah piece it together and i i I really love that editing process so So the big question i have for you is are you still a vegetarian i decided to eat meat once a week (laughs) so it didn't didn't put you completely off it's a start no but the sound guy hasn't eaten meat since he saw the lamb being slaughtered so just to plug my first year documentary it's called marvin marvin is is, is that online search marvin harry hayes yeah comes up on vimeo okay right Harry, what were your recollections of first hearing Dan under in business as usual? I mean, look, you're the youngest of the four of us here, and you weren't around during the heyday, or the Colin heyday, sorry, bad pun, I had to do it, of, uh, of Men at Work. So where did you first hear the song? Was it something that your dad was always playing around the house, playing that album, or were you just interested in Down Under because of the whole debacle that took place a few years ago? I think I would have heard it around on the radio and at parties and like at sporting events. I kind of never took much notice of it. And then I was overseas and I'd been studying in Hong Kong for a few months and the song came on. I had like an iPod and I downloaded a bunch of 80s music and it, it just sort of came on. I think I was feeling a bit homesick at the time and the, the song like really struck me in a way it had never before. I realized that there's probably a lot of people that uh, this song um, like inherently kind of it means something to them and I thought no one's really gone and, and told that story of how this song became this kind of de facto national anthem so that side of the story I, I thought needed to be told and I was aware of the case and interested in copyright and thought it was 
yeah, it seemed like a very interesting topic and there seemed to be an audience just already there from people liking the song. So that's how it started for me. At this stage, we actually haven't sort of really gone and explained to the audience what your short film actually sort of covers. So do you want to give a bit of a description as to... You're not just talking about the song, and I don't know whether, how much people outside Australia are aware of what happened back in 2010. So I want to give just a bit of a basic explanation as to what the story was. Okay, so the song was a huge success, like commercially and culturally, and kind of had settled into being a sports anthem, I guess, like at the Olympics when someone would win a gold medal for Australia, they'd sometimes play Down Under, like it had become this thing, and it stayed that way for about 25 years until someone on Spicks and Specs, which is a quiz show on the ABC, there was a, a question asked, which Australian nursery rhyme does this song? reference in the flute line and they played the song and everyone was sort of listening and not sure what what nursery rhyme is in there and then the the host sort of played it again and eventually they realized kookaburra sits in the old gum tree I'm not sure how many people knew it was there. Like some musos say, yeah, I heard it when, it, you know, but it had never been stated in such an obvious way because it's, it's quite a, I mean, some people say it's not there, but it, it, it's quite a disguised reference um, if it is. And that led a company called Music Sales, which owned a company called Larrikin. That brought to their attention that their copyright in Kookaburra, the nursery rhyme, was potentially being infringed by this song that had amassed a lot of revenue over the years. So they decided that they were going to take on Men at Work and EMI in a case over copyright infringement. And the case went on for a few years, and I'm not sure whether to spoil the ending or not. So, Your call. Yeah. Your, I think regardless of whether people know outside of Australia, who I mean, everyone in Australia who is a pop music fan knows how sadly it all ended, but your story is more about the investigation, which I think is still makes it for fascinating viewing. Yeah. Next question worth two points. Have a listen to this. Name the Australian nursery rhyme this riff has been based on, as well as the name of the man playing it. It's Men at Work. Men at Work it's, down it's, under. It's, it's Greg Ham is the flautist. Greg Ham of Men at Work, yes. yes. And Down Under is... No. We don't know the rhyme. That riff has been based oh. on a nursery rhyme. All right, I'll give you one more listen to it. This bit is special. Kookaburra sitting in the old gum tree. That's exactly right. I have a question for you, Harry, that's really interesting. I want to know, like, your motivation behind this, is it to kind of vindicate Greg Ham or just to, to kind of explain, like, how ludicrous it is? I mean, like, I know as a filmmaker, you really don't want to lay down your own opinion necessarily. You want the audience to basically uh, make their own decision. How do you uh, do you feel about the whole situation? I mean, was it a, a primary motivation for you to make this? About the kind of stupidity or about the popularity versus, you know, what they were trying to kind of uh, shake out of it? Mm. So, for those who don't know, Greg Ham, the flute player who played the flute riff in question, he died a couple of years after the case. It was widely reported that the case had sort of caused 
post his death. So yeah, there was an element of this making this film that I wanted to show. I wanted to show Greg Ham in a light that was not a plagiarist. I wanted to get to the bottom of whether they did knowingly reference Kookaburra. And I also just wanted to investigate whether that matters if they did. And I guess I was just interested in like the process of music. I'm not a musician myself, but I'm I'm someone who creates things. And I guess my philosophy on creativity is that it doesn't all come from within. That there is like when you're undergoing a creative process, like ideas just sort of come to you through the culture that you happen to be in and it just seemed to me that if the reference was one that was made without him even knowing like if it was because some people said that you know it just sort of came out of him and i just thought that that was interesting like is that just how creativity works we just reference what we know and maybe he didn't know it was kookaburra or the other way i thought about it was if he did know it was kookaburra is it such a bad thing to to reference the past and especially within music i think it's done a a lot where you you take a nod to your contemporaries to get into your film there's a part where um one of the i forget the fellow in particular is in court and he's having to testify martin and, okay martin amateur and he's talking about the bailiff whatever the prosecutor's talking about uh how it's primarily an australian song that's referencing australian culture so i mean you know my question is why wouldn't you have kookaburra in there I mean, shit, you know, that's that's a song everybody knows. And, and, and it's, it's part of, like you said, Harry, what, you know, what he grew up with. I mean, that's it's a definitive element of, of Australian culture. So I don't see it as being a negligent thing. I see it as being someone who's being proud and referencing part of, you know, like you say, like the past, you know. Mm. When you talk about like plagiarism, it's usually it would be done in a sense to, to in a sense of like not being able to compose your own music you would take something else and like sort of hide it that it was actually that thing it's not as though it's like the main melody of the song it's like this little reference that just gets like thrown in there which is why the judge decided no larrikin you're not getting your 25 percent of royalties for the last few years you're getting you know three or four percent of royalties for the last few years yes there's a case to answer but it's it's so minute as i think you've already gone and indicated there tim uh, or actually maybe no sorry it's you harry you'd you'd said that uh, other musicians do it all the time oh yeah i mean route 66 Mm. route 66 i mean most of you know chuck berry with uh the beach boys surfing usa and sweet little 16 i mean there's been so many cases throughout music history of haven't gone to court but i mean it's the same riff and everything one of the most famous or infamous ones was my sweet lord you know i think it was uh, he's so fine And that was, right. you know, absolutely bat and ball. That was the whole melody. It was, it was not even like we've taken a bar or two. I mean, this is the case that Martin Armager does in his explanation in the film. He says, right, well, we have two musical phrases separated by two other musical phrases. 
and this is right. sort of it's referencing that in this Australian culture, and that's not the same thing as stealing. But he's so fine was you know blanketly stolen, you know maybe not intendedly. George right. Harrison says it wasn't intended as a thing of my sweet lord. The two are completely different. I'm not saying that a musician doesn't have the right to cover his or her intellectual property, but this wasn't even the case of the songwriter covering their intellectual property as a, a publishing company who'd gone and bought the rights to it and thought right. that they could do what they wanted. Here's a question I'm going to present to all of you guys. Do you think that Greg Ham said to the rest of his band, hey, listen, I'm going to incorporate this flute riff from Kookaburra and put it in the song because this song's going to become one of the biggest national hits that you've ever seen? Yeah, I guess um, I'm still not 100% sure whether they said at the time, this is Kookaburra. But as one of the lawyers told me, I think if you were intending to put this nursery rhyme, it might have been assumed that it was just already public domain. Like the, the nursery rhyme had was so widely used in so many places that, I, and that's sort of how it became a nursery rhyme. The original writer was very open with the copyright. She would get letters saying, can I please use this nursery rhyme in my songbook of nursery rhymes for Australia? And she would always say yes and, and hardly ask for a fee. She really wanted to connect like community with music and unfortunately when she died her estate was sold and that's how she didn't have any family and she actually tried to give it to the South Australia Library but it didn't quite work out and this company ended up buying it so I think it's it's possible they just thought all right well like this is Kookaburra but I don't think anyone's going to mind or yeah it's it's so hard to tell what was on their mind 30, 30 years ago or they might just as well have gone and thought well we're only doing a couple of bars it you know no one's really going to care it's not like we're doing a whole middle section of the song but well, I'm sure it, it, it wasn't even an issue for them at that point when they were writing it it's just no. oh yeah that sounds no. pretty good let's just stick that in there exactly. and you know can exactly. I uh, can I ask you Harry you spoke to a pretty good spread of people who were kind of involved with the song and what occurred afterwards but I think Colin had he was kind of conspicuous by his absence. Um, now, there's a little, um, you sort of state at the end that he, he declined an interview. I, I'm just curious as to why. Did he give a reason why he wasn't uh, interested in taking part? Or I should say as well, Colin Hay was the uh, guitarist and one of the songwriters, I believe. So. Mm. Yeah, I contacted him pretty much as soon as I started making the film because he was sort of an easy lead. Like he was still, he had an online presence and he had an email address. So I contacted him. He didn't respond for a long time. And eventually after sort of emailing him maybe one more, two more times, he sent me an email saying that I guess he was just sort of flattened by the whole case and he was really done with it. Like it it had taken, I think the case lasted a few years, but all the legal work prior, and after the case, had ta- he said it had taken like six or seven years of his life. He said he was just done with it. And I guess another factor was uh, there was a documentary being made solely about Colin at the time. And okay. even they, I talked I talked to them, and they said he was even he really didn't want to talk about it. And yes, yeah, so I guess there. Are, a few reasons and I, I guess it would be intimidating for a journalist to contact you and say who you don't know hey I want to make a story all about you sure, and yeah. whether you were guilty of this and yeah so I, I can understand yeah. why he wouldn't get on board yeah that that definitely makes sense it's just it, it would have been interesting to kind of hear his take on things wouldn't it but I, I, you know I can totally respect that decision at the same time so right. can we talk just for a little bit about the actual song because you know, the first what I really admire about how you've made this film is 
is, you know, you spend the first 10, 12 minutes or so just reacquainting the viewer with what was great about the tune to begin with and its development. Now, that original independent version that they released of Down Under, I had actually heard that years and years ago. I went into a a little record store here in in Melbourne, and I think in Paran. They had the record and were playing it over the store sound system. sounded like you know just this really little lo-fi reggae tune and had an appeal all its own speaking for you know just as yourself because you've already gone and said that we know that you weren't around during the you know the song's original run did you find yourself like hearing that version during the making of your film like something of a revelation how did it appeal to you I i loved that version of it i was always keen to track down as early a version i could find of it to really tell the story of its grassroots beginning because it's such a i guess produced track so it's it's nice to find because i've heard with that recording that they kind of just walked into the studio and just played it like they didn't separate much they just they all just like banged the song out once and then that was the record yes (laughs) it sounds it yeah the produced version it's a a really good version i think and i I guess because to tie it in back to the last question about colin not getting on board colin said no but i thought if colin's not the main character then like who is i was thinking like if i just get as many band members on as possible as many academics as many artists maybe i'll get onto colin again and maybe impress him with the list of people who are on board and that'll get him on board another maybe obvious main character could be greg who died or at least documentation of greg or what a guy he was but his family didn't want to get on board either so eventually i realized that the main character has to be the song (laughs) that's what led me to really um just focusing on like those earlier versions and how the song just evolved just sort of thinking about that i reckon it probably worked well in your favor because really the story is about the song that would possibly explain why Greg's unfortunate death was almost like a footnote in the film but you know the more is the tragedy about uh, as far as your film's concerned what happened with the song or more, not so much tragedy but the ridiculousness of uh, how it, mm. how that sort of came to be uh, yeah Jerry and John and Ron involved with the film when you first sent them emails or got in contact with them you know, how willing were they to come forth did you have to talk them into it or were they pretty amenable from the start well I was I didn't really have any leads to begin with like other than Colin's email address and that didn't really lead to much so I live in Melbourne and I was in a cafe in Paran and they were playing Men at Work and I just sort of started the process of research. The barista told me that one of the guys from Men at Work always comes in here or used to come in here or something. So it kind of just made me 
we see that it's a very Melbourne story and that these guys aren't that far away from me. Like they're maybe a friend of a friend of a friend or, you know, they're probably not that far. So that was good. And then I got um, a friend of mine, uh, Alice Stevens, to be the cinematographer on the film. She went home and told her parents and her mum told her that she knows Jerry Spicer, the drummer, like very well. Like they go walking together all the time and like that was a crazy coincidence. And yeah, that was kind of the first lead. But, He's a yeah, real so uh, character, sent- Jerry, it seems. He seemed very likable and very sort of traditionally Australian to uh, to my British eyes, shall we say. Does he look like John C. Riley to you, Bernie? I can kind of see that, yes, yeah. Uh, my friend's mum got me onto him and then I emailed him, I think, and he didn't think he had much to add, I think. He was concerned that he'd been kicked out of Men at Work after the first album and he thought, I don't know, he thought he didn't have much to add, but I told him, like, I just want to talk about Down Under and it's not a story about any breakup or anything, it's just about the song and you were there when, when the song was made. So he told me to do a bit more research and, and he told me to read a book by, this lawyer who represented another band member in the breakup who'd done a lot of writing about copyright and this particular case. So I read that book and I met up with that lawyer and he represented John, the bass player, and so he was in contact with John. They were still good mates and he sort of put me onto John. So then I had two band members. Yeah, that was the start. And once I sort of got a few band members, it kind of legitimised the project for getting Paul Kelly or Michael Lunig and other. It kind of just kept moving forward like really fast and people kept opening doors for me and I, I've, it was it was a story that kind of wanted to be told because a lot of academics and a lot of people really helped me helped me make it does Ron strike it not live in uh, Melbourne anymore no nah, Ron is in the States somewhere okay. I'm not sure right. where but yeah can I ask you a, a kind of stylistic question about the scenes where you're dealing with the court case and the, obviously the court sort of transcripts you decided yep. to animate those scenes I thought that was a really interesting sort of stylistic choice and I was just curious as to why you went that route. I think it works very well. Because so. all I was looking at were, were transcripts. Like, all I had was paper and, and words. They were only really an impression of what was going on. I wasn't in the room when the sure. case happened. Was it an actual recording of the uh, transcripts? Was that actors reading the... Yeah, we got some actors right, okay. and, and we oh, that's we shot it. Yeah. We sh- we shot it just in a sort of dark room with some lighting. It, it looked like we w- we were never planning on using that video. So yeah, we got a um, animator to rotoscope rotoscope it. It was a very time consuming process for him. And um, sure. but yeah, it was just because to actually create a reenactment on video, I thought it would have been a bit of a lie, maybe. So mm-hmm. I think to have it animated, it, it keeps it. It's just an impression of the case. Like it, it wasn't the case. Bernie's already gone and mentioned he liked that as a stylistic choice. I also loved how you chose to animate the four bars, then reduced to two bars of music in Martin Armage's explanation as to how Kookaburra Sits in the Old Gum Tree actually was incorporated into the song. Why did you decide to do that? I guess it just helps to visualise the structure of the bars because he's talking pretty specifically about the way the Kookaburra riff has been manipulated. To just talk about like bars and music terms, it might not have gotten across as well, so I thought sure. animating that would really help. I really so feel just- bad for the guys men of work to tell you the truth because I mean I know that your documentary is 
just a direct focus on this one song. But it seems that after, you know, the litigation and everything, it just seems that, you know, it's almost like Nirvana, Teen Spirit. That one song, and that's the majority that everybody knows is just that one song. But uh, Men at Work had a number of number one hits. You know, in the end, it's kind of sad how one thing that they will probably be remembered for by many people is having to go through the ringer in court because of these lyrican assholes. Yeah, I sort of only knew the Who Can It Be Now and Down Under when I started making the film. I got into their first two albums when I was making it, and there's definitely a lot more to Men at Work than just those two tracks. I'd have to say that the single from the, the Cargo album, Overkill, was uh, really a song that means a lot to me. It's the pinnacle of uh, at least the Men at Work songwriting. I can get you sleep I think about the implications Of diving into deep And possibly the complications Still, that was such a culturally iconic part of Australia at the time, and you know they had achieved what other musicians hadn't done overseas at the time. I mean, you know, Australian musicians and film people going overseas—it's no big deal anymore. But I think that Men at Work certainly opened the doors for a lot of musicians. So now it's just taken for granted. But back in the day, I think maybe you know the rest of us were discussing before you came online, Harry. That apart from maybe Helen Reddy and Little River Band and Air Supply, that's all American knew. Of Australian music, and you know, there's oh, still yeah. there's still plenty else, but that you know, Men at Work sort of became a band that, well, you know, nothing against those other bands, but you know, we could sort of not be I, embarrassed about. I remember being in high school in the '80s and hearing "Who Could It Be Now" for the first time. That and uh, "Be Good Johnny," right? Is that, that that's the song, right? "Be Good Johnny" is yeah, it? yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that was yeah, that was on that first. Yeah, album. I think the timing of that first album was just as MTV was kicking off, and MTV sort of took on Men at Work as like their as like a they, MTV really pushed it as a, as a music video and it, also the timing of the America's Cup right um, right really well, I've heard like I, I wasn't alive storm. but yeah I've heard I, I wasn't yeah. alive back then but like I've heard that Men at Work were just like bigger than any Australian act like they, they were just they blew up into something so big so quickly I remember watching the TV on the morning when it had been announced that Australia had won the America's Cup and I remember seeing live to where Bob Hall making that statement. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. <laughs> if any boss sacks his worker for coming in late today to work, he's a bum. And, you know, they're playing, <laughs> they're playing down under non-stop for weeks. Everything to do with the America's Cup. It became, I think you already mentioned the Olympic Games back in 2000, but it was the sporting anthem of uh, the America's Cup back in the time. I guess the song still lives on, even with all this nonsense. The song still is a sort of, I guess, yeah, defense facto national anthem right you didn't have it in the film but did you attempt to get hold of anyone from Spicks and Specs to sort of ask them if they'd known whether this fallout was going to take place whether they just would have not brought it up I was really curious on that angle as well but none of them really wanted wanted to talk to about it I think they were really embarrassed that they'd kind of they were the 
catalyst. It may have come out later, but um, yeah, I think they just thought it was harmless trivia. Yeah, and it, well, well, which and it, really it was. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Harry, have any of the people involved in the actual documentary seen it yet? Have you had any feedback from people? From band members? Uh, or you know, from... Any of the people you interviewed or, yeah, sort of members of Men at Work or so, or so on? When I, I had to raise a bit of money at the end, so I did a possible campaign, and the film was pretty much finished, but it hadn't been animated and there were a few sort of costs to pay so I was I was doing a bit of fundraising and I got all friends and family to come over to my mum's house and we set up this huge screen in the front yard and it was it was a pretty big event it ended up being about 100 maybe 120 people came it was like a fundraiser like we were sort of selling drinks and Jerry and John came I wasn't sure whether they were going to come we played the film and then I made a speech and I sort of sat down not sure what was going to happen next cause, and and someone yelled out what do the guys from Men at Work think and they they stood up Jerry and John like they're very used to like being in the spotlight I guess and they were very comfortable to chat to like everyone about what they thought and uh, I think it was, I was sitting near them when we were playing the film and they, they just kept recognising all these people from their past like the guys who made the music sure. video and I think it was really fun for them and they really like the film like they they get around it that's good that's good to hear I wonder if you can get Colin to watch it. I mean, I know he's over it all, but maybe you know, one day, ten years from now, he'll be a little bit more objective and say, "Well, it's terrible, but it's part of the history." Yeah. Wait, wait. If you're originally from Scotland, when you sang that song, "Do you come from a land down under?" You should have said, "Not originally." That's right. <laughs> but it, it, it didn't. It didn't really. I couldn't fit it in. You know. No, well, no, that would Do you come from a land down no, under? No, no, not, not originally. originally. Yeah. <laughs> I was. Ha- I was having a hard enough time trying to. Trying to rhyme breakfast with nervous, that was a very dodgy lyric. That was, yeah, I remember that. Time and breakfast, very nervous. nervous. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) While we're talking about what people thought of it, how did the film department at Swinburne like it? They were really enjoying it. It wasn't quite finished when I finished uni. I had done all the filming. I was spending like four or five hours a day trying to edit it. There was a lot of um, sort of storytelling problems that I was facing. It was too long. I had to cut it shorter and shorter and shorter. So they actually never saw the finished product oh. I passed and that was the main thing how much footage did you shoot Harry we did about 15 interviews and it was about an hour long so that I've got hard drives and hard drives full of it <laughs> Paul Kelly and Michael Lunig are only in there for like less than a minute each but did you have longer chats with them and just prove to not give too much away that we're sort of digressing from the story or? No, me and Michael Lunig had a really long chat and it was great because I've always like loved his work. It was great to agree with him about some of it and Paul Kelly as well. I had to keep the story tight and... I could only use, yeah, little bits of everyone, really. I was always wanting to take the film to another place, like sort of another chapter about go more in-depth with copyright law. And a lot of the artists, I was sort of talking quite in-depth about specific copyright law. And when I tried to edit it in there, it it wasn't working. There was a lot of legal jargon that wasn't coming across. It's so complicated, so I ended up not sort of using a lot of stuff I filmed. Maybe we'll get to see a director's cut one day on DVD. (laughs) 
that is the director's cut. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, sorry. <laughs> so what's your next project? Are you still going to stick with documentaries or you want to make a narrative? What, what's next for you, Harry? I'm really enjoying documentaries and I'm sort of veering off towards radio stories and audio stories at the moment. When I, I finished this film and then a few months later, I remembered that there was this other little story that had been told to me. I thought it could make a good um, radio story. And it's about John Reese, the bass player, and the sound mixer. When that before men at work happened, one night they were sitting around in a student house in Box Hill, and one of them pushed their chair back, and it sort of ripped the carpet up. And they noticed this trapdoor in the floor, so they decided <laughs> they decided to pull the carpet up, take the trapdoor up, and start digging. And they found a dead body, and it's this <laughs> what a crazy story that kind of like wow. both John, the bass player, and Mark, the sound mixer told me about it and I just thought that I gotta go back and get that so I got an audio story so I'm just yeah I'm interested in doing them because I guess mainly because they're very cheap to make radio stories it's a really um, fun form of journalism where you can just mix music and storytelling to tell a good yarn I think I'm always, I'll always be a storyteller but I, I sort of I'm moving around mediums at the moment nice, nice. I'll quickly plug the radio story oh, please if, um, people everything. out there if people out there are interested in listening to it. It was featured on Pocket Docs on Radio National. So if you Google ALSA, like A-I-L-S-A, ALSA Pocket Docs, it should pop up. I'll do a Google, find it, and I'll put a link to it with the episode. And also, you've got a website for the film. As we're recording this, it's still not released at large to the public, although the trailer is on YouTube for You Better Take Cover. Yeah, so at at the moment, um, I'm just sending it around to film festivals, and I'm hoping to get a, a deal maybe with ABC or another distributor. In the meantime, you can check out www.youbettertakecover.com. We're setting up a mailing list at the moment and it'll be done before the end of July. That's July Um, 2016. Yep. Yeah, and if you're on Instagram, you can follow You Better Take Cover. You can learn about all the upcoming screenings and stuff around Australia. It's actually it went to Manchester Film Fest and also New York Independent Film Fest. So. Wow. Yeah. Once again, thank you so much, Harry, for uh, being part of C here. Thank you for being our very first interview guest. I hope I was a good guinea pig. You, uh, you, were, you were no <laughs> guinea pig. You were a fantastic guest of honour. Uh, a lot of really interesting information. We're big fans of film, obviously, for doing a film podcast, but also really interested in the filmmaking process. Uh, I think we've all learned a lot tonight, so uh, really much. Yeah, thank you very much, Harry. Uh, thanks yeah, for thanks, Harry. Thank you. Okay, you're listening to C here. Bernie and Tim and myself will be back in a moment. Thanks once again to uh, Harry for joining us on See Here Podcast Episode 31. I hope that all you listeners out there enjoyed that conversation and hopefully it'll be available before too long on a video on demand service. I'll definitely post something up to the See Here page as soon as that is the case. He wants to get it shown around the world on different film festivals and then you know put it on VOD or maybe on DVD. It'd be interesting. I'm sure he shot a lot more footage than uh, what we see in the half-hour documentary. That'd be uh, an interesting thing to see before too long. But yes, I will definitely post more information as soon as the film becomes widely available. It's definitely worth seeing. So uh, episode 32 will be up 
later this month. We, two episodes. Lucky. We're spoiling you people out there. You lucky, lucky people. Um, <laughs> now, episode 32 will be the film that you announced at the end of uh, episode 30, Bernie, which is... We are going to be talking about Uli Lommel's 1980 film, Blank Generation, featuring Richard Howe and the Voidoids, I think, pretty much, and a whole bunch of other people. I'm not sure because I haven't watched it yet, but uh, <laughs> I was looking saying, forward to it. I was saying to you before we started recording that for some reason I was confusing this with Times Square. Not quite sure yeah. why, maybe you know, yeah. the same period, but I do believe that Eric Reanimator has made a request for us to do Times Square. If you're listening to this, Eric, and... I'm sprouting shit, then please feel free to not abuse me. But anyway, that's uh, something also I think that we'll inevitably cover down the line. So the usual details, you want to get in contact with us to request that we cover a film or to say, hey, I think I can do better than you guys. I want to join you for an episode and show you how it's really done or anything along that line. You can contact us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here or is it see here podcast try both hit us up and let us know your favorite music related films documentaries or narratives anything it's all good quick recommendation if uh, you can see sing street if it hasn't shown in your part of the world yet and it's coming watch it john carney wonderful film i know justin oberholzer is a big rave for it so see that that's my recommendation all right, so with that, I think we all, do we all need to sing a chorus of I Come From a Land Down Under or are we going to spare the listeners? I think we should spare the listeners, personally. Um, yeah. We put them I'm through enough. enough. <laughs> I can't, I can't. We put them through enough. Yeah. <laughs> all right, with that, we'll say farewell. Please let other people know that we exist. Be nice to each other and recommend some good music and some good films and recommend some bad music and bad films. It's summertime. It's bloody hot out there, so you don't want to sit outside. So sit inside in air conditioning listen to some great tunes and watch some great films Holy stay cool yeah. and stay hydrated mm. alright till next straight. time till next month cheers cheers bye It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 